consent to that. <laughs> okay, so, um, hello, uh, I'm Leo Sadakanza. This is my podcast, Hudson Valley Historian. Uh, if you want to introduce yourself, Mr. Frazier. Sure. Uh, my name is Mike Frazier, and I am uh, the... I live here in the village of Rhinebeck. I've lived here for a little over 50 years. Uh, I am not what they call a native. I was not born here. Um, but I, I've been here a long time. And in addition to being the village historian, village of Rhinebeck historian, I'm the deputy historian for the town of Rhinebeck. And I'm also the archivist uh, for the Rhinebeck Historical Society. I'm actually a, uh, a native of, and I'm actually a citizen of France. Uh, but I'm also an American citizen, and that's a much more complicated story. So I won't uh, bore you with that, but I'm looking forward to uh, answering Leo's questions about history. And uh, yeah. All right. Awesome. Okay. All right. So yeah, uh, a couple of questions I had to. I was just thinking, like, I feel like this is such an, uh, like, an interesting, like, very detailed branch of history. So I was wondering, first of all, like, how did the Hudson Valley like change over the course of the nineteenth century? Like, how did it go oh. from what it was to what it was at the end of the or the start of the twentieth century? Well, the Hudson Valley has gone through enormous changes. Uh, it was one of the earliest areas to be settled uh, in the what is now the United States. Uh, you know, of course, we go back to Henry Hudson in the very early 1600s when he uh, was looking for a way to get across all that water and and looking for what was known as a northwest passage and he did manage to find this hudson river uh, and navigated up it and uh, managed to make it up to what is today albany uh 1609 that was and you know at, at that time there were Native Americans on that. Fortunately, he had somebody on his, it was named the Half Moon, this boat that he sailed up the river, uh, who made all kinds of notes about what they saw, what they experienced. And a lot of their encounters with Native Americans were positive, a few of them were not so positive. And uh, they went back to Europe uh, told their stories and others followed. 1624, we see uh, New Amsterdam being settled at the south end of the Hudson and a lot of interest in the Hudson Valley, Fort Orange, today's Albany. Yet developed, uh, I mean, it was, you know, the, the Dutch were very serious about business, especially about trade. And they wanted to be sure they had decent relations with the natives in the area. And they were able to deal in beaver skins, which were a hot item in Europe. You could use those to make hats, to make uh, 
kinds of warm clothing and the Native Americans were quite eager to uh, get involved in that kind of trade. And the area where I am, which is kind of in the middle of the, that distance between New York City and Albany, Rhinebeck, uh, is right across from where the Rondout comes into the Hudson River. Uh, the city there is Kingston. And there was earlier settlement in that area going back to the mid-1600s, earlier than in Rhinebeck, which didn't really get uh, any interest in it until much later in the 1600s, around 1688. Um, so this, this area on the east side of the Hudson River remained uh, untouched by these uh, predators from Europe. And until around then, around 1688, and at that time, the interest really was in having um, a way to have some very limited settlements so you could actually claim that the land was yours. Uh, you know, the origin of the community where I live, the town of Rhinebeck, is that in 1688, there was a deal made between the native three representatives of the Sapasco Indian tribe um, and three representatives who actually came over here. They were Dutchmen who lived in Kingston um, and they signed an agreement uh, over what is either about a thousand or maybe it's two thousand acres, depending on uh, where this oak tree on the edge of the Hudson River was actually located in those earliest deeds. Uh, the references, uh, you know, would often start as well from an oak tree on the east side of the Hudson River going east. Uh, 90 degrees, well, if that oak tree isn't around anymore, the little question is to where it was. But in any event, we had all this land on the east side of the river that was in this agreement between, in 1688, between these three Dutchmen and three Native Americans um, that became property of the Dutch, of these Dutchmen. And that was the earliest uh, development, if you want to call it that, put up of property uh, in this area. And at that point, there wasn't, you know, the interest was in trade and any trade, any activity was going to take place along the river. Uh, and it wasn't until later that the development and activity and settlement took place east of the river, only, you know, half mile, quarter mile, three mile. And that development was along the, what became called the Albany Post Road. Today we call it U.S. Route 9. Uh, and it was from uh, Broadway in New York City all the way up to uh, to Albany, 
Um, and it was the route that was used by people delivering the mail. That's why it was called the, the post road. It was the post office road. Um, and it's where you had to go to make sure you hit all these settlements and got the mail to them. And so that was the earliest kind of development. Um, and the, uh, uh, over time, uh, a lot of that land got cut up into lots and where you had, uh, the Albany post road going north and south crossing with Indian trails going east and west, one of which we had here in, in Rhinebeck, it was called the Pasco Indian Trail. It went from, uh, what is today Rhinecliff, uh, east through Rhinebeck along what is now known as, uh, County Route 308, uh, and actually would have passed just north of where you live, I think, uh, mm -hmm. Leo. That's very interesting. Uh, Enterprise Road and heading uh, over towards, uh, Connecticut. Uh, and that's, how, that was the Sapasco Indian Trail. Um, and those old Indian trails are often today, uh, routes, county routes, sometimes even state highways, sometimes just local trails, uh, local roads. Uh, and uh, that established what would be the, uh, you know, later uh, lines of uh, growth, development, merchants, um, and where communities would, would begin to uh, grow up uh, and that's that's how we have um the village of rhinebeck today it's it's actually the earliest development in the land area here on the east side of the river it was not in what is today's village of rhinebeck but was actually about three and a half miles north where route 9g intersects with us 9 uh and that was known as rhinebeck uh, whereas the village was known as Rhinebeck Flats, uh, the area up there further north at 9 and 9G, where today there is a uh, what's known as the Stone Church and Way Road, and uh, <clears throat> those were Palatine settlements, and the Palatines who settled there in 1727 were actually a group of individuals who had I'm down here from Germantown up in Columbia County, and how they got to Columbia County is another story. Um, the Palatines, uh, and it actually comes from, uh, the Palatines came originally from Germany. Uh, and in 1709, uh, they had left, many of them were, originally in the Württemberg area of Germany in the area and north of there in an area of Germany known as Rhineland Pfalz, P-F-A-L-T-Z. Um, and it's from that Pfalz uh, that you get the word Palatine. Um, and they were uh, unhappy in the late 1600s, early 1700s, with all these wars going on 
in the borderlands between eastern France and what is today Germany. Uh, of course, in the late 1600s, we didn't have a Germany. We had a lot of Prussian uh, states, smaller right? states. Yes, that's right. And uh, armies going back and forth all the time and pausing to uh, take whatever crops might be in their way. So it was like so just total could... economic devastation, I guess, in Europe? It was. It was a mess. <laughs> um, so it, in any event, understandably, these folks left that area. They went to the Netherlands. They were not too welcome in the Netherlands because they were viewed as immigrants who, uh, you know, were, you guys are not from the Netherlands. Get out of here. Well, some of them went back to the Rhineland. Others, more of them, went over to England. They weren't too welcome in England because they were hanging out in uh, the various parks. We didn't, the English didn't want all these immigrants. They put them in boats off the uh, off Southampton uh, that were waiting to fill them up. And then they, at the direction of the Privy Council in England, um, they wound up going west to the New World um, <clears throat> and to the Hudson River. And they tried to, they wanted to unload themselves in New Amsterdam. Uh, they were not welcome. We don't want a lot of immigrants. A lot of you guys have been on these boats for a long time. A lot of you are sick. Get out of here. So those boats went further up the river to um, what is now the Germantown area. And, well, they unloaded a bunch of them on the west side of the river and, and created this area called West Camp. Today we know it as Saugerties. And then on they went up a little further north and unloaded the rest of them on the east side of the river, created an area known as East Camp. Now it's Germantown. Um, 1709 this is, 1710. Uh, and why did they go up there? Well, because there was somebody by the name of Livingston who owned all this land up there. Uh, Livingston is an English name, Scott's name actually. Uh, and he had all these connections in the Privy Council in England, Livingston owned, had been given a grant for hundreds of thousands of acres on both sides of the Hudson River. And, but, you know, the deal was that you've been, you've been given this grant of land, but you've got to have people settle it and you use just, it. You can't so, just have like vast untamed wilderness. So he had yeah, to like use the land. Yeah, so he agreed. All right, you know, you got these people in boats that you're trying to get rid of and clear out your parks, and you don't want all these immigrants, and I'll take them. But uh, as long as you uh, give me a little money so that I can feed them, uh, and yeah, in return, what I will do is have them cut down a lot of trees up here. Uh, we have a lot of trees. And I know you guys over there in England are expanding your fleet. And in order to expand your fleet, you've got to make sure those boats don't sink. So you need some kind of glue to, uh, you know, keep those pieces of lumber together that make up a ship. And uh, we have these trees, these evergreens, 
that are probably going to be as good as your, you know, you guys are paying in England are paying a lot of money to the people in Norway to uh, get this uh, sap from those trees that you use to caulk the bottoms of these ships. And I can get it, I can, I can have these Palatine settlers put them to work, cutting trees, sweating them. We'll put that stuff in barrels and we'll ship it back to you. Well, it turned out that when they shipped them back to England, the English found out that, you know, the Norwegians make a better product. This stuff that's coming from uh, Livingston and his Palatine guys, <laughs> this is junk. Oh. It does not protect our boats from uh, leaking. Was it like the wrong so, type of tree, or was it just like they were? Well, it was a different kind of evergreen, and it just, uh, you know, it didn't work. Uh, I, I don't know the, you know, I'm not aware of anybody who's actually done the science to determine why it is that that sap was any less good than the sap from the Norwegian uh, trees, but... Um, uh, at some point, somebody will do that research and come up with a more specific answer. But what happened as a result of that was that Livingston, who was getting this money from England to keep these guys going, you know, he had uh, several thousand of these settlers, and a lot of them had young children, and uh, they were cutting trees down, and he said, wait a minute, you know... <laughs> <laughs> we don't, I don't want these. you guys. Uh, he decided to uh, cut his losses since England wasn't going to send him any more of this welfare money, keep these guys alive. Um, so instead of being responsible for a couple thousand of these Palatine settlers, he decided that he only wanted to keep about 300. Wow. The rest of them left. A lot of them went to uh, the Schoharie Valley, the Mohawk Valley. Um, a bunch of them also went down to Pennsylvania, which is why we call it now the Pennsylvania. You know, a lot of people miss the misnomer is that it's called the Pennsylvania Dutch country. It's not the Pennsylvania Dutch country. It's the Pennsylvania Deutsch country. It's German, uh, not from the Netherlands. It was these Palatines who were no longer wanted in New York. Uh, and But 27 of those families who hightailed it out of who were no longer wanted by Livingston up in the Germantown area came down to Rhinebeck and they are, and they came down to that area that I'm telling you about that's at 9 and 9G. And they were the uh, original uh, settlers in that area. And we still have many of those Palatine names here in Rhinebeck. Um, so that was, you know, one form of development. And then later on, we had uh, Rhinebeck Flats, the village itself. Um, and, uh, you know, over time, the industry that developed in Rhinebeck was originally a, a mercantile, uh, you know, people selling farm goods of different kinds. And the fact that it was at the intersection of 
the Old Post Road and the Sapasco Trail made it a very attractive location to develop a business. You knew a lot of people going by there all the time. Um, and eventually, you know, going into your original question was about in the 1800s and 1900s, uh, you know, what changes were taking place. By the, by the late 1800s, what happened was that uh, the, somebody named uh, Saltford was his last name, S-A-L-T-F-O-R-D. Uh, there were several members of that family who were originally in, in the Poughkeepsie area. They came there from, from England uh, in the, I guess it was around the mid-1800s. Uh, and they realized that the soil was really good for growing violets. And um, they realized that the area north of Poughkeepsie, uh, around Rhinebeck, Red Hook, Hyde Park, uh, that the soil was even better. And the climate conditions uh, for growing violets and it wasn't just that they could grow them there, but that there was an enormous demand uh, in New York City uh, for violets. Where did this demand and come from? Like, do they just, they're pretty? Or is it like... I'm sorry, I... I oh, so I was, I was wondering, where did the demands come from? Was it just like they were pretty, or was it just... like? I, I think, yeah, part of it was they were pretty, they were delicate, um, and there was a, there was some publicity given to, uh, the, uh, attractiveness of, of those flowers. And the other thing was that Saltford, the, the Saltford, uh, family were very good promoters of the, of the value of violets and they did some advertising um, in New York City papers uh, and word got around and they were they were ahead of the game compared to a lot of their other business competitors in terms of promoting their product um, so the you know eventually by the late 1800s um the the violet industry was uh, you you had over 300 violet houses uh these were greenhouses wow. um that were on individual properties in the just in the village of rhinebeck alone i mean that seems outrageous but um but that was partly because of saltford's promotion and he had written a book that explained how you could build your own greenhouse and how and also had made arrangements with the uh there was something called a railway express agency which was sort of like an early version of the of fedex um that was located on east market street in the village of rhinebeck and they would collect um, 
violets that were brought to them in these special boxes um, and take them to the railway station in Rhinecliffe. And the railroad had reached Rhinecliffe by 1850. Uh, and they would be taken train to New York City and just be gobbled up. And it was uh, guaranteed sales. Uh, and that was a business that was very successful for uh, many individual homeowners who would have these um, greenhouses in their backyards right into uh, 1905, 1910. Uh, according to the records kept by the uh, by Dutchess County, by the uh, tax people, um, the amount of revenue brought into Dutchess County through the sales of violet and the, the tax revenue on that was greater than any other single source of income wow, that, I mean, for, that's crazy. Uh, for a period of about five or ten years. Uh, right around the turn of the, you know, at the end of the 18th, I'm sorry, at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, you just, know, 1910. Just violence, um, just like the sale and distribution. Just from the sale of violence. Yes, wow. that's right. That's right. And today, you know, the the violent industry is almost non-existent. We have a single. Um, grower of violets in the town of Rhinebeck. It's Battenfeld's out on 308. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, is it? Yeah, I guess that's 308, um, which is in the, I think that's the town of Milan, uh, just east of Rhinebeck. And, you know, he just has one strip in one greenhouse where he grows those. Violets are very difficult to grow. They're very sensitive to changes in temperature. Um, and, uh, you know, it, <clears throat> I mean, I'm looking out my window here and uh, it's uh, it started to snow about uh, two hours an ago. hour and a half, two hours ago here yeah. in Rhinebeck. And it's, uh, I think, turning to rain. Uh, but if you owned a greenhouse tonight that... You know, you, you have to maintain an even temperature. So there would be what were known as uh, stoke houses at the ends of every greenhouse. And it was a place where you maintained a fire uh, if you expected sub you know, sub-freezing weather, even if you expected, you know, in 30s or 40s, because... Um, those greenhouses needed to be in a range of temperature at least uh, 40 degrees and no higher than 65 degrees. If it was too cold, the violets would die. If it was too hot, they would wither and die. So that's why in the greenhouses you, you have these Florestry windows, which are these little windows that open up at the top of a greenhouse to let out the heat if it's getting too warm in the summertime. Uh, and why you also have what are known as these stoke houses, uh, 
uh, at, that would generate heat in the wintertime. Uh, and the difficulty of maintaining one of these greenhouses, if you were, you know, just a single homeowner who owned a piece of property on Chestnut Street, uh, and you had a greenhouse in the back where you might make uh, $30, $40 a year, in that time, that was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you needed to make sure those violets didn't die on a cold winter night like tonight. And so you needed to make sure you were out there keeping that fire going, which meant that somebody might have to get up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and put another uh, piece of wood on that stove in the stokehouse. Uh, it was a lot of labor. And uh, a lot of people would get upset if it didn't get handled properly. <laughs> um, uh, what happened? To, like, was it a huge economic shock when, like, the violets stopped being in so much demand, or had? Uh, it it hurt quite a bit. It wasn't sudden. Um, there are, uh, you know, there are some questions as exactly why the industry uh, went downhill. I mean, we did have greenhouses here in the village, uh, just across from the Dutchess, what's today the Dutchess County Fairgrounds, um, that grew violets right into the 1970s, uh, but they they gradually uh, closed down. One uh, explanation is that there were. Um, there were a number of individuals who were gay or lesbian who really loved violence and who promoted those and that others had an adverse reaction to that. Whether that's true or not, I, I don't know. I, um, but it is it in, indeed the case that by the 19... 19- 50s, the uh, violent industry had certainly gone downhill quite a bit. I mean, one of the one of the strongest promoters of violence was the wife of the president, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, wow. used to often in her public appearances, she would wear on her dress. Uh, a bunch of violets uh, and she would explain to people that you know she was from the Hudson Valley from Hyde Park actually she was from further north but uh, but she was a uh, she was just in love with violets and she loved to display them wherever she was and it made others quite interested and one of the other um, uh, contributors to the popularity of violets um, was at football games um, and uh, men who were college students would have dates at those games and it was uh, a common way of uh, complimenting your date to give her violets and to have her wear them in the same way that Eleanor Roosevelt would display them. 
Um, and so that was, uh, you know, that, that helped promote them uh, and it increased the, the demand. Uh, and it, you know, the climate and the soil uh, mineral composition here in this part of the Hudson Valley was especially friendly to uh, the growth of islands. Uh, it still is, but not that, you know, you still see actually a lot of wild violets growing in, in a lot of areas of the village, uh, but they're, they're not cultivated as, as widely as they once were. Mm. Uh, that's, yeah, that's all very interesting. So then it kind of just like petered out over time, but it, it yes, did cause like right. some economic downturn. Assuming, like from... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they made up such fast. Um, well, that was you. You answered a lot of my questions in that uh, one thing. But um, one thing uh, was how has the railroad impacted Rhinebeck and like the area around Rhinebeck? The railroad made an enormous difference. The railroad came to and and by the railroad were actually talking about what is today the uh you know amtrak that runs from you know new york city all the way up to montreal um and in before 1850 uh there was no railroad going along the hudson river um but the uh the development of the railroad made it possible for trade to occur much more efficiently it, it wasn't easy doing all the work i mean especially right here in actually it would have been Rhinecliff. uh the the challenge that those building the railroad encountered was that you had rock face going out right out into the river and that had to be uh cut apart to allow the tracks to go straight north and they also ran into challenges from property owners who did not want i mean remember these these were many of these properties in dutchess county and going north into columbia county along the river belonged to the livingston family and they thought they could uh, dictate uh things uh as they wanted them to be and they got a bit of a shock when the uh, state of new york uh, sided with the owners of those developing the railroad and said you know this is a public service and uh, we're declaring eminent domain here and we're going to run this railroad line right up along the river, right across your property. We'll give you fair value. We'll go to court to determine what that should be. But that's the way it's going to be, guys. That must have been like real slap in the face for them. Yeah. So um, it made a difference in the sense that not only that, that people could move north and south a lot more efficiently than they could on a steamboat, or on the Albany Post Road, uh, but it also meant that goods could be transported to and from New York City a lot more efficiently. Um, and it, it certainly, you know, I just gave the example, which was a little bit later in the century 
with the violet industry, uh, but even earlier than that, uh, the uh, you know the railroads just uh, allowed the communities to be connected more efficiently and for trade to occur. Um, the I mean by the I'm not sure, don't remember exactly what the year was that the refrigerated railroad car was introduced, but that probably made even more of a difference because a lot of the, uh, you know, New York City needed to drink a lot of milk. Uh, and <clears throat> there were a lot of small farms that provided that milk that were immediate neighbors of, I mean, some of them actually even in the New York metropolitan area, uh, New Jersey or Pennsylvania or Long Island. Um, But one of the scares that hit New York City was tuberculosis. And tuberculosis is carried by milk. Uh, It would come from cows that were infected with tuberculosis. Um, And New York City had a health department that was very concerned about the number of their own citizens who were uh, coming down with TB. Uh, That was much more of a killer back in the 1870s, 1880s than than it is now. Um, But what they decided was that if you were going, if you were a farmer who was going to sell milk in New York City, you needed to be inspected by the New York Health Department. And you had to get a license from them. And many of the farmers uh, strenuously objected to that, but um, they wound up having no choice. And the real impact of that was that if you had a Remember, most of these were might were farmers that might have had a herd that had maybe no more than uh, five or ten milk cows. Uh, but if they could uh, sell that milk uh, to New York City, that was a decent income for a small farm. Um, well, the problem was that if you had if you had an inspection and they found one cow that was uh, positive, tested positive for tuberculosis, you had, you had to kill that cow and you had to kill the entire herd. You had to kill what? You had to kill the entire herd? Had been, uh, uh, you know, because tuberculosis can spread very easily from, from cow to cow, especially if they're kept in the same barn. Um, And so as a result of this, uh, many small farms in the immediate New York City region uh, wound up being unable to get the necessary approvals. Uh, it was, uh, which was real tragedy for the economy of, of those small farms, but the impact up here in the Hudson Valley was the opposite. You had farmers like 
Levi P. Morton, who had been, uh, you know, he would be president, vice president of the United States, governor of New York, um, had been a congressman. Uh, well, he owned this 2,000 acre farm in Rhinecliffe. We had somebody named John Jacob Astor who owned a very large herd up at Ferncliffe. Uh, we had Jacob Rupert, who had a sizable herd further, a little bit further south. Um, well, all these guys uh, had were producing had herds that ran not ten or twenty, but a hundred or two hundred. Uh, in the case of Ellerslie, which was Levi P. Morton's Rhinecliff, uh cows, group of cows, we're talking about 400. Um, he had the largest barn in Dutchess County. I believe it may have been as largest in the state of New York at the time. It was right on the river in Rhinecliff. Um, and they were able to um, make sure that the conditions under which they maintained those herds uh, did not permit, uh, I mean, if, if they, they would be testing their animals all the time and could catch them, if, if any of them tested positive, um, and it rarely happened, but they would be able to afford to wipe out not only the animal that was tested positive, but any other animals with which that cow was housed. And even though that had a you know negative economic impact, they could survive that because they had so many others and were able because of the refrigerator car to ship that milk promptly to New York City, get approval of the New York City Health Department and become the largest providers of milk to New York City. And it, it was an unbelievable economic, um, you know, positive, had an unbelievable economic, positive economic impact for this uh, this county, um, you know, at the same time that so many small farms closer to New York City uh, couldn't do what these guys were doing uh, and maintain, uh, you know, any kind of of uh, competitiveness in in the milk business. Uh, so the railroad had a lot to do uh, with their ability to thrive um, and it uh, you know there are a lot of other examples uh, I mean for example the ice business the Knickerbocker you know the we had a lot of uh, the, the economy you know aside from farming in this area uh, and you know I'm talking about by this area I mean, Northern Dutchess County, um, where the river would, would freeze for a good number of months during the winter, because we were above the salt pine, and where during the summer it got pretty warm. Well, the economy during the winter 
was to cut ice into ice blocks and store them in these barns that were built right alongside of the river. Uh, the economy in the summertime uh, was to build bricks um, and uh, yeah. so you know between those two uh, that made and those two economies depended on New York City uh, the ice would be shipped um, in railroad cars uh, you know you'd have layers of straw between the blocks of ice uh, they would be shipped to New York City uh, during the summer uh, and the bricks would be shipped uh, actually a lot of them would, would go to the city in barges because it was less expensive to ship them by boat uh, but some uh, you know, to some extent, that was uh, the railroad that helped transport all of that to New York City, where there, you know, many buildings today are built from bricks that were manufactured, built, uh, you know, made here in the Hudson Valley. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I mean, <laughs> in your first, in these first two questions, you kind of answered. Um, all of my other questions. So, um, I mean, I just want to say thank you so much for making the time to come and talk with me. And you know so much about the um, this whole Dutchess County area. I mean, I was just astonished. That was truly amazing. Well, I'm very happy to share that with you. And, uh, you know, if anybody has any other questions, if you have any other questions, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. It's uh, Michael Fraker at earthlink.net is my email, which I think you have. And uh, you also have my cell phone, 845-464-2015, if anyone wants to uh, have further questions. And I'm the archivist at the uh, Rhinebeck Historical Society. We are open to the public on Tuesdays and Thursdays. and three throughout the year on the lower level of the Star Library, except on holidays, uh, such as Thanksgiving, which is coming up soon. So, yeah, I this has been a pleasure talking to you, Leo, and, uh, you know, best to you and your colleagues and your, uh, and your work over there at the Millbrook School. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yep. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.